Okay, hello everybody. Welcome to Adult Music, a special episode of Adult Music where we'll be talking to the conductor of the Boston Modern Orchestra Project, Gil Rose. Gil Rose, welcome to Adult Music. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for yeah. having me. It's good to it's good to meet you. Um, so you, so you are in uh, Boston at the moment. I am in rainy Boston at the moment. Rainy Boston. Yes. It's, it's really it's really funny. It's raining here too. We've had uh, <laughs> really torrential rainy. rains this week. We had a heat wave earlier this week, and then yeah. temperature dropped, and the rains came. Oh boy. Okay. Is it is it hot there yet? I used to live in Boston long ago. It was, it, kinda... it was super hot this week. Uh, got up near 100, and now it's in in the 60s, which is Ooh. typical wow. of Boston. <laughs> temperatures up, temperatures down. Wow. Oh, boy. Um, let me ask you, before we start talking about the BMOP, do you, has the orchestra been performing uh, recently? Are people coming back? Um, well, no, actually. We, the last performance we did, the public performance we did, was February of 20. So we haven't had a public performance in 16, 17 months. Um but we recently, a couple of weeks ago, uh, spent four days together recording. So we, we have reassembled, but not not in public. Yeah, it seems like you've been doing actually a lot of recording. If um... <laughs> Well, we've been doing a lot of releasing of recordings. Uh, but we just started again doing the actual recording sessions themselves. Okay. Well, I think I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Let's um, let me just uh, kind of get back to the beginning here. Um, tell me about um, just first of all your your. Let's just start with you um, yourself. How did you uh? It says it says here in my um, in my <laughs> my Wikipedia research to coin uh-huh. an oxymoron. Okay. That you were born in Pittsburgh and you got your bachelor's in music at the University of Cincinnati. Um, tell me, but first of all, about your early life and how you got into music. Um, well, I grew up in uh, southwestern Pennsylvania, outside of outside okay. of Pittsburgh, uh, kind of the corner, uh, the the left low corner of uh, Pennsylvania, uh-huh. bordered by West Virginia on three sides, um, right. both both geographically and socially and uh, <laughs> structurally. Um, but uh, I got involved in music uh, like a lot of American kids do of my generation. I started playing in the in the instrumental program in the elementary school and then mm-hmm. played in the junior and senior high school bands and uh, became, you know, enamored of all musics and uh, just it went from there. And then I went to pursue uh, music education, uh, which, you know, is not something that normally happened in the, the school I came from. It was not a it was a nice high school music program but it wasn't anything like a a special music program or any concentrated music program but um yeah i started out as a as a undergraduate in the conservatory at the university of cincinnati and uh i didn't know what i wanted to be i thought i maybe wanted to be a clarinetist i thought maybe i'd be a composer i thought i might be a musicologist i bounced around between i thought i would be an art history major at one point and then i I finally graduated, I think, if I remember correctly, with a with a music history degree and um, several minors. But um, but I yeah, think I, I've got said, one of those. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I I was always sort of focused on uh, ultimately uh, conducting. I think all the other things I was doing were 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 preparation for studying conducting, but I didn't do that as an undergraduate. But then I went home to my hometown in Pittsburgh and. 
went to graduate school at Carnegie Mellon University, and that's where I started my conducting studies. And finished there and moved to Europe to seek my fame and fortune, and didn't really find either. Well, um, still, uh, I don't know about that. Well, <laughs> yeah. Europe, after, after this podcast, yeah. it's, yeah. it's all going to change. Maybe it should have happened earlier. <laughs> anyway, I, I moved back to the States, uh, relocated in Boston, and I've lived here ever since. All right. So your instrument was the clarinet when you were. Uh, uh, it was rumored, yes. Uh, rumored, uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, often uh, forgotten, but still remembered. Now it, um, yes, I was. Uh, I was a. I was a, just like all the minors and all the various uh, things I was uh, dabbling in. I was playing all sorts of woodwind instruments, including saxophone, and I. I was what they would classically call a doubler. Right. right. Played all of them fairly well, none of them really well. <laughs> right. Well, how, how did that start? Did you get into, did, were you from a musical family or did you just happen to like music? Well, uh, yes and no. I mean, my my father's family had a long history with music. Not, not um, well, I had an uncle who tried to be a professional trumpet player uh, and then ended up working as an engineer. But uh, no, my father was... Uh, loved music and his family it was very much in the home uh they all played instruments and uh you know this was back in the 30s and 40s and they would gather on sunday afternoon and just you know make music i don't know quite how they did that quite an array of various instruments that don't usually think you think of going together but that was part of uh uh, you know, their, their family activity. And, uh, my father just always uh, loved music. Um, though he wasn't an expert, uh, in any, in any sense, but he loved singing and listening to music. My mother's family, uh, as they say in France, she couldn't carry a tune in a saucepan, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but they were very supportive of my, my desire to do it. And, um, yeah, they never tried to convince me to be a doctor or a lawyer or anything like that. They just right. knew that I loved doing it. Um, you know, I have a son who's an aspiring jazz musician. And, uh, you know, I had to, I've been put in my, and he's just in college now. And uh, I've been put in my father's shoes because I had to, yeah. I wanted to advise him the tough road he was about to hoe. And yeah, he yes. did, but never asked him to do anything but what he loved. Right. Okay. What's his name? His name's Coleman Rose. Okay, I, well, okay. I, 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 when I named him Coleman, it uh, it, it was a, a, a sign of things to come because of all the. He's a tenor sax player, so there oh, were. So you got uh, Coleman Hawkins, George yeah. Coleman, and. Coleman, yeah, there's, there's uh, yeah, there's a there was a lot of. It's uh, a loaded name, yeah. It's a loaded Hopefully name. It carries yeah. him along, yeah. Great. Yeah. Oh, we'll certainly look out for him. So I wanted to now that I got his uh, name in mind he's, there. He's, he's pretty. Um, I think you will hear of him. He's a talented kid and uh, loves what he's doing. Great. Okay. Well, Boston, which is where you are now, is that right? That's right. Yeah. Okay. How, how did you wind up there? My alma mater, by the way, Boston University. I, I uh -huh. went there uh, as for my undergraduate degree. So how did you uh, wind I, up there? I, was living, I, I said I went to, to Europe to pursue my fame and fortune and also a, a girl yeah. uh, who then became my wife. And we were living in Geneva, Switzerland. And we, re we wanted to relocate. She, she was friend. She's now my ex-wife, uh, but but still my good friend. Right. And we um, we wanted to relocate back to the U.S. Uh, for various reasons. Um, and 
we picked Boston as a place where both of our professional, you know, aspirations could flourish. So right. and then ended up here. Okay, and you started the did, now you started the uh, Boston Modern Orchestra project. I started the Boston Modern Orchestra project, which is a lot uh, to say, too many words, and they're too long. So we we call it by its acronym. Uh, some people will say BMOP, but we just say BMOP. BMOP, BMOP, which everybody in, in town and a lot of people nationally and internationally know it as that. Um, yeah, th- that was in 1996. We played our first concert. Okay, in, in 1996. Yeah. Right. Wow. Okay. I was already gone by that. It's too bad. I would have definitely gone yeah, to see this. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm looking at the. Um, you, you also have a. Um, the the Boston Modern Orchestra. Um, <laughs> the Boston Modern Orchestra Project or BMOP also go. has a uh, records for the record label BMOP Sound. So you have your own record label. Can you yeah, t- we, tell us about that? Well. Early on in the, or I was always very interested in um, recordings. Uh, mm-hmm. from, you know, uh, Us too. Yeah, I can <laughs> see the boxes behind you guys. Yeah, I'm wondering. Right. These, are, these are all CDs. Yeah, <laughs> um, I don't doubt it. Um, so it was always a, something I, I was involved with as a listener, and I wanted, I thought the, the kind of music that the orchestra was playing was often pieces that weren't recorded. Um, and we started making recordings and then we put some out on other labels. Uh, our first CD was on Naxos and then we were, we had a couple titles on new world and on Chandos and a variety of labels. And uh, we realized that we were doing all the work uh, to make the recordings and the CDs and then just sort of licensing them to other companies. So, we decided all we needed really was a UPC code and some kind of distribution network and we could do it all ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we did. We're just, uh, we just released our, I don't think, I think our 81st and 82nd uh, CD. Uh, <laughs> and um, they're coming out fairly regularly now because that's one of the things we have been able to do during COVID was since we haven't been able to perform, we've been working on getting the backlog of recordings released. Uh, yeah, I was wondering because I, I was just looking at. Uh, you said what in you're in the 80s as far as um, yeah. number well, of releases. I was when I, yeah. yeah, when I was doing the research. Yeah, I, I was like, overwhelmed by the sheer amount of recordings that are around this label. Sometimes yeah. I, I look at it and I, I I'm, I'm amazed. Yeah, but they all were labors of love, you know, and they're all composer centric CDs. So right. we are on a few CDs on other labels that have you know, mixed composers or mixed ensembles. But on our label, it's all us playing all of a composer on ACD. So they're all sort of composer profiles, as it were. It seems like they're all also SACD, Super Audio CD. Is that that the case, Mm -hmm. all of them? Not Well, not all of them, but uh, after the first, I don't know, dozen or so, uh, we're just in stereo format. Um, And then we... You know, I was at, being an audiophile myself. Yeah. Uh, like the the SACD five point one format, so we started recording in it. I think for us, it's been um, a, a very good thing because, you know, there's there's not all that many uh, aficionados of the kind of repertoire we record, but there are are a lot of audiophiles. Uh, so I think our our titles get attention from people interested in new and recently new music. Mm-hmm. 
as well as people interested in, in the audiophile experience. So we're, mm. we're just working on a title first thing that will be done in Atmos. Um, wow. Uh, so, yeah, that's a whole new world. I, I don't have that kind of equipment. So. Yeah, not many people do, but if, uh, the ones that do will get, you know, they're interested in whatever they can find in the Atmos. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear what an orchestral recording would sound like in that format. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's well, we're trying to figure it out. It takes a little, takes a little getting used to, uh, but... Anyway, we're trying to stay connected to the to the audio file uh, listener as well as the music listener. Yeah, yeah that's fantastic. great. I always I think you know that's where SACD really can uh, bring the benefit with the spatial characteristics of orchestral music. Yeah. And uh, you know now that everything seems to be going the other way with convenience for streaming, uh, it's really nice that. You know, some labels and some groups are sticking with, you know, especially right. the SACD thing. So that, that's a nice thing to see. Yeah, I think that uh, every title we've done, and there's been a few stereo titles in the middle uh, because of, for some reason we didn't record it in, in surround. But um, I think going forward, everything is gonna, will continue to be SACD until maybe there's a format change and we'll see that. Yeah, who knows what's next, right? But, yeah, yeah, I like great. that format. I'm glad that that's still um, yeah, av- me too. available. I, I yeah. like it. And um, the dual layer makes it perfect because people right. who just have stereo just can have stereo. Right. Sure. Right. Yeah. It's just a nice warm sound as well. It's kind of, you know, the high sampling rate and uh, Well, that we sort have of some thing. good venues we record in and and mm-hmm. we can really take advantage of the acoustic. Uh, can you yeah. hear my dog in the back? Yeah, yeah that's okay. <laughs> tell, tell me about the venues. Uh, where where do you record specifically? And does it have you figured out the sound in the hall and how to record it? On right. These, um, well, yeah, we have. We've kind of got it down down in the two. The two main halls we record in are Jordan Hall at New England Conservatory which for your listeners who don't know it, it's about a thousand seat hall. Right. Um, it's worth taking a look online and looking at it. It's quite beautifully shaped, the very high uh, ceiling in the hall and the sort of, um, sort of like an oval shape. Uh, it makes for, especially if we're using between like say 25 and 60 players, it's mm-hmm. a it's a really great venue for for that. It's got a very clean sound, but but warmth at the same time. It's it's a nice combination of of the kind of sound I like. And then the other hall we use for even bigger things is Mechanics Hall in Worcester, Massachusetts, which is a world class acoustic uh, in the middle of a, what used to be a big town in in central Massachusetts. Right. Uh, but it's a big hall that was built just after the Civil War, actually, uh, to host big choral festivals. And um, it's got a fabulous acoustic. I mean, a lot of a lot of audio um, editing and mastering softwares, uh, you can apply the acoustic of any given hall. Like you can mm. take your recording from Jordan Hall and apply the, the Berlin Philharmonie, uh, and it gives the characteristics of that acoustic. The Mechanics Hall is in, on all those programs. It's a great place to record. We, like I said, we were just out there a couple of weeks ago, um, doing four days of sessions. So okay. those are our main halls. If we do smaller things, sometimes there's other halls we use. But I would say ninety percent of our recordings are in those two halls. Okay. So the uh, BMOP, the Boston Modern Orchestra Project, these these recordings seem to be exclusively exclusively of American composers. Is that the case? 
Well, almost exclusively. Um, mm -hmm. It wasn't designed that way. It just sort of turned out that way. Um, we have one title, uh, which is sort of uh, timely. Uh, early on, we did a CD with Louis Andreessen, who just passed away yesterday. Right, yeah. So I, I think that. Louis the only... Maybe he's the only non-American we have on our label. We have some yeah. other recordings of other things on other labels that are not American composers. But yeah, we've sort of become, uh, I don't know if you guys remember or your listeners remember um, the series of recordings that were made in Louisville, Kentucky, the Louisville first edition recordings. It was a recording program that ran, I don't know, must have started in the late 50s. Mm -hmm. ran through the mid-70s, maybe up until 1980. The, the Philharmonic Orchestra in Louisville, Kentucky, um, made this series of recordings called the First Edition Records, and mm -hmm. they commissioned most of the pieces they recorded. And it was an interesting, uh, a lot of interesting rep and great repertoire came out of that um, effort. They, I think it helped the orchestra in, in what is really the, I think Louisville's the biggest city in Kentucky, but that's not, saying that much um mm -hmm. and i think that helped the orchestra give themselves a special identity um which they then became a sort of a national identity they they through the activity of doing new music and commissioning stuff and then recording it and distributing under their own mark mm -hmm. um i think it really was a important moment for them as an institution but it also helped them um raise money and, and and create projects even outside of the confines of Louisville, Kentucky, which, you know, there's not enough composers there to do that project, but they became a national thing. And right. in some ways, Beamop Sound is a little bit like that. Okay. Can you give me an idea? Um, I'm not really, I don't know that I'm familiar with that project, but what you, you said that uh, they had commissioned a lot of the uh, works that were recorded. Can you give me an example of some of the works that they commissioned? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, they, they commissioned just about everybody uh established composers like let's see uh i'm trying to remember some of them yeah. people who are still still around today like ellen's willich was one of the composers they um i mean the list is uh, john harbison um mara uh. davidovsky uh, it goes on and on and you, you name a an american composer either a natural born or who had immigrated to the country um in that period and the odds are they they at least had one piece yeah. commissioned and then premiered and recorded by the louisville uh i think it's louisville symphony but it was the louisville first edition recordings yeah then right. they released a lot of those those they they used to do something that we don't do they would do any one of their they were on lps of course so mm -hmm. they there weren't the length wasn't as long so they would usually have two compositions or three and they would have different composers. So they were not in, they weren't, uh, you know, composer profiles. They were just three pieces that they did, which was more the fashion back then anyways. Right. And um, recently they, they've combined like that they commissioned Carlos Cernak to write three things over 10, 12 years that were on three different LPs. They've put them together on CDs as co composer profiles, and you can—they're still out there, and they were re-released, re and they're, they're definitely some fabulous um, repertoire there. But composers that are sort of, a lot of them have faded from from common knowledge uh, right. and view. So that's great that that material's out there. 
Yeah, having grown up in uh, America, for me, for both of us, um, you know, we're familiar with some of these uh, composers that a lot of the rest of the world doesn't know about. Right. And uh, looking at this, uh, the BMOP project, there's a lot of uh, there are a lot of composers whose names I remember from back in the day whose aren't really that well known. Yeah, sometimes they, they, people fade for reasons that, and pieces fade, um, yeah. reasons that aren't always explicable. And that's sort of why we're here, to to right. perform them, uh, pull them out of mothballs and right. record them so that they don't get forgotten and they, they're part of the, the canon, you know, as much as we can influence that. I wanted to yeah. ask you, um, with an orchestra that performs, you know, exclusively or with a strong focus on these sort of modern works what's the demographic of your audience when you have live performances is it is it different from you know the normal classical listening audience does it tend to be younger or a certain type of people that's been a question we've been asking for 20 plus years Uh, it's funny our demographic it's it's best word i can use to describe it is people who are interested in eclectic things Mm -hmm. Uh, it's not it doesn't break down by age or by uh, economic, um, you know, um, level or social interaction. It's, it seems to be just people that have, have an interest in things they wouldn't normally hear at right. established, like at the Boston Symphony Orchestra. That's very cool because I just having been, uh, you know, interacting internationally for a few decades now and comparing with my own American background, I find this sort of openness, eclectic nature to be more of a European type of thing. Whereas, you know, Europeans tonight will go to the opera and maybe the next night is the jazz club and we'll check out our favorite rock band. Whereas Americans tend to be, you know, sort of streamlined. They're Um, much more in silos, yeah. If you can attract, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of... uh, audience that's open to a lot of things i think you know that's a really interesting achievement and a cool group of people to have uh, it is. As and it, it, you know it, a lot of our concerts are a little bit the opposite of our, our recordings so our recordings being co- composer centric our concerts tend to be themed concerts um mm-hmm. i i i was in, always interested in programming things that had some unifying theme but showed different aspects of that theme so our concerts have been based on, you know, by doing new and 20th century music, we get a lot of potential to interact with all sorts of ideas outside of the normal classical concert, symphony, concerto, overture format. Um, so we'll do, with, we've done many themes around um, uh, indigenous music's influences or, mm. or national music's influences. We've done concerts that involve Japanese music influences, or uh, even we did a concert of Canadian composers, if you can, uh, you know, can wrap your head around that. Um, uh, we called it True North. Um, but That's a good title. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's good. They're, they're, they come to you, but sometimes they're, you have to fight for them. But um, right. there have also been things about technology or about extra musical ideas, um, <laughs> just to unify the concerts. And then... Um, the concerts are often uh, serve as a, a setup for making the recordings. I see. Okay. okay, interesting. So, when you program these um, these concerts, um, do you find that you have to um, 
include some sort of uh, popular work in there in order to draw the audience or does your audience yeah. just uh yeah I, at first in the first years i did that always i know and, yeah. I'm, and popular That's, is sort of a relative term but i would always put a known piece right uh in with uh lesser known pieces as mm -hmm. the or as the orchestra has become more established and has a little bit more leeway i i didn't have to do that as much but i've sort of gotten back to it actually because yeah. um you know, I always make the joke, uh, and I, I guess it's, it's a, it hits a little close to home, but I always say I, I should be in the Guinness Book of World Records as the conductor who conducted the most pieces once. <laughs> that that but, sounds like a rough uh, yeah, know, No, no, no. It's a, it's a burden to bear, I can tell you. But uh, no, I've got to do an amazing amount of music, and um, but I very seldom get to do pieces twice. And... Mm. Um, so as the group uh, has uh, gotten on in years and, and established itself, I've, I've gotten back into like putting some, um, you know, 20th century quote unquote masterworks right. back on the program uh, if I can, if they fit the theme or I can work them in, you know, that's, um, that helps also contextualize the things people haven't heard before. Mm -hmm. Right. So, Okay. Um, let me let me see. Uh, oh, I think what I was really asking there too is, um, so do do you feel like you need to draw your audience, or by now does it do have like people who just come to hear you just because it's um they know uh, what you're gonna do? Or, I think that most of our audiences become our BMOP audience in a sense, and they're they've they've taken fantastic. enough risks with us, and they generally come out of them feeling rewarded um, that they they're. They're trusting in in what we're programming, even if they don't know it. it, it I used to have a, a concert goer, and he was a, a, a supporter of the organization, who always said he would come to a concert and there'd be four pieces. Uh, one he would love, one he would absolutely hate, <laughs> uh, one would intrigue him uh, to listen to more, and one he usually didn't understand at all. That sounds so, like every great concert I've ever heard. Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> so, <laughs> Uh, that was I, I took that as a compliment, especially the part about not liking one. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. you think you have to push it. So we often say like, there was a what was um Otto Otto Ye, He was a British um, music uh, I guess a teacher and um, things like that. And he used to say that when when it comes to music, you should never say I know what I like. He said uh, um, I don't know what I could like. So you're really sort of pushing yourself. Yeah. I thought that was a really that quote yeah. stuck in my mind. Well, really you know, I think that the, getting back to the audience, I mean, I think there's just people who've had, they, they, they. I always say when I somebody says you want to go to the concert and hear Beethoven Seven, I always say, well, I know how it ends. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There is so, that. And I mean, I, I just recently did a cycle of Beethoven symphonies with a festival I used to run in New Hampshire, but um, that's the thing about it is that. When you keep hearing the same pieces over and over again, it stops being about the piece right. and starts being about the performance. And then it either has to be about how quirky the performance is or how perfect it is. Right. And that's been a, a, a sort of a negative drag on programming and creative thinking in the symphony and opera world. Right. Uh, it became about the performance, not about the composition. And right. that's uh, not healthy. Yeah. Not healthy for making more music go, go go forward. Anyways, it might be healthy for the bottom line uh, for a short time, but ultimately, it's not a sustainable model. 
Right. You know, you've, I, I think of the days before Mendelssohn, um, all when he started introducing, reintroducing box works and started uh, coming up with a repertoire, all music was new. You would just go and hear right. like, yeah. Well, right. It's funny that you break that ex- uh, example because I, mean, I just had this discussion with somebody the other day. When I started BMOM, it wasn't really about new music. Right. It was more about trying to understand or come back, recreate the, the structural model for making concerts that Beethoven used. Beethoven, nice. Beethoven only had to, did concerts when he had something new to do. Right. Um, Mendelssohn's a different story because of the Bach uh, revival and everything. But um, but Beethoven and had to write pieces um, that would engage his audience because he required the ticket revenue to make the whole thing work out. And it often d- did not work out. <laughs> um, but that was the model that I thought that we had lost, that we were not creating a triangle between the performer, the creator or composer, and the audience. And that we had lo- the modern American orchestral structure had lost that connection. And it had become about the something different about it was about preserving and and not even i wouldn't say preserving it was about preserving a limited number of special objects right and uh, i thought that just was really boring to me so and you know there are enough people that that agree with me that it is boring and they want something else to keep us you know thriving and and surviving yeah, as an audience member, I, I sort of want everything. I want all that stuff, but I want more. I want yeah. you know the new stuff too. Yeah, and I, sometimes yeah. people think I'm uh, I'm uh, dissing the you know the great masterworks, which I am right. in no way, shape, or form doing. I think I think we diminish them if we put them in a in a vacuum and right. don't see them in 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 relationship to even things that admittedly are are not masterworks. Uh, they they become more interesting if they're seen in the context of everything that was around them whether it's as good almost as good not near as good uh but still good the the beethoven seven becomes more interesting if you know about spore right you know or whoever but even music like Spore, um, you, you might people might say it's, I, I have uh, no idea that we were going to talk about Spore in this conversation. <laughs> well, well, we're not really, but you brought it up. Well, I, I'm just Tartini. following up. We could also talk about Tartini if you'd like. Oh, I like Tartini too. Those uh, solo violin works, uh, yeah. you know. But uh, the thing I want to say about Spore or any of these uh, com- relatively unknown composers is that um, when you hear their music today, it's it's gained from its age, I, I feel like it's kind of you know, the patina of time and of the musical language that it uses becomes really appealing to us now, even though it's not considered the peak of that uh, period, music of that period. I, I often will dig into projects to listen to things that I know exist or names right. that I know exist, but I don't really know the pieces. And right. that's, uh, you know, what good recording labels and ones that are surviving and thriving now are actually in much more involved in boutique repertoire than they are in, in the, the standards. You look at, you know, Chandos or CPO or um, Channel or even Naxos, it, it's all encompassing um, right. yeah. way. They're, they're helping you get a, a greater 
much more mosaic picture of what music is. Now the Beethoven in that period, let's sticking with the Beethoven example, those symphonies in that mosaic stand out as bigger pieces. But mm-hmm. they're, if you look at a mosaic, the smaller pieces have interest too, and they inform the big pieces. Right. And I think that's what we're talking about. So in our way with BMOP, we're trying to do sort of the same thing. And we've gravitated towards American music written in the last 100 years. Right. Okay. And speaking of that, we may as well get to that uh, right now. Now, I've, I was looking at this list of over 80 recordings. Uh, I decided to zero in on the last releases from the last two years since we were all locked down. Yeah. And uh, yeah. yeah, I was looking at some of the, the composers here, some familiar to me from uh, from college, Gunther Schuller, Harold Shapiro. I remember having a recording on New World by conducted by Andre Previn, of all right. people. Right. The, the Symphony for Classical Orchestra. Right. Right. Uh, Okay, and uh, John Harbison, who I first learned about when I worked at NPR over at WBUR a long time ago, and uh, Norman De La Gioia. Now I heard I heard this opera for the first time in the performance. You it was nominated for a Grammy, right, uh, right. this year, and I listened to it for we did a Grammy episode, and uh, I was rather un- delightfully surprised by it. I didn't really. I didn't... And Norman's a good example of what we do. I never knew Norman De La Gioia, but I always knew of him. Uh, he taught at BU, your alma mater. Oh. And, uh, you know, if you'd have mentioned Norman's name in the late 60s or early 70s, he would have been in the 10 most prominent American composers of the time. Now, everybody's forgotten. And uh, he, um, he, he, Pulitzer Prize winner, um, mm-hmm. you know, he was a, he's one of those, those composers whose uh, music has faded. And, I got interested in that piece because I, I, you know, it's funny about Wikipedia. You can go down some little rabbit holes or (laughs) (laughs) Google searches in in general, but if you're like a repertoire wonk and you're interested in, in repertoire and, and, and composers, you just need a starting breadcrumb and then you can really follow it down some, some paths. But I was actually that, that, piece is called The Trial of Rowene. And Norman right. Joyo, um, over the course of his life, wrote basically one opera, but in three different versions. And they were all Joan of, uh, the story of Joan of Arc. Right. Um, one, the first one was with John. The second one was an adaptation, which is this piece we're talking about, The Trial at Rowene. Yeah. was written for the NBC Opera Theater. And NBC's television used to commission operas. Um, many famous ones we know. The, probably the most famous uh, Christmas opera, Manati's A Mall and the Night Visitors, was a, writ, written for television. Right. And yeah, so this the piece, The Trial of Rowene, was one of those versions. So it's only like 80 minutes long. It was designed for like an hour and a half broadcast. And um, after that, he revised it again for a bigger full-length evening opera uh called The Triumph of St. Joan. Mm-hmm. And then he extracted a symphony from it, uh, from the, um, the opera, like a, like a suite. And I was just, I, I was looking for operas that were inspired by Joan of Arc story. And I hit that Norman Del Giorgio thing, and I remembered clearly in my mind as a young, young guy in some high school band festival playing a Norman Della Gioia band piece. And then I went down a rabbit hole and I realized that this was a, an important American neoclassicist who had just fallen off 
off the map. Yeah, it seems it seems like there are. I I think there are a lot of those. I remember I like John Harbison's music a lot. Who's that? Uh, John Harbison. Yeah, well, John's still with us and hasn't fallen off the map in Boston. Uh, right. But um, there's there's a laundry list of, right. of recordings I still like to make by composers I haven't even touched yet. Can you tell us some of them? Yeah, I, I have a project I want to do. Of, like all projects, they only exist if they can be financed. Um, right. But so, if any of your listeners are out there uh, have an interest in uh, the music of Alexei Hayev. Um, Alexa Hayef was one of what was called the second Boston school. So those were composers like Harold Shapiro, Irving Fine, hmm. Lucas Foss, um, Alexa Hayef, um, and there were, uh, Louise Talma was one of them too. So hmm. those composers, they were sort of neoclassicists that bridged the world. Arthur Berger was one of them also. Um, they sort of bridged the world between Copeland Schoenberg and Stravinsky. They were like at a, the, the, the Venn diagram of, <laughs> of those three composers was the Boston, second Boston, what's called the second Boston school. And those composers have always been of great interest to me. Um, I, I have a fascination with uh, composers, some of them were all, uh, ac- academic composers who have, you know, were very well known at uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago, but have been, like sort of relegated off the page, uh, Karel Husa or or um, now uh, uh, Rossley Finney. People taught at Michigan. People right. taught. There's it just, the list is endless. It's, it's, it goes on and on, and they're all being left in the behind in a way. Yeah, when you said <laughs> that. No, sorry. No, go, go ahead. ahead. You keep well, keep talking. I, I was just going to say that it seems that one of the things about the, the way we think about music now is we like the, the old and the really new, the the new thing that got up on social media and somebody promoted and, and that's, you know, uh, flashy and uh, uh, has uh, internet savvy built into it. But we forget, we, we forget our recent past at our, at our own peril, I think. Mm-hmm. So, now, when you say when you say that, you're, do you, do you mean Americans or do you mean just people in general who listen to this music? Well, people in general, I think, are sort of go that way. Um, mm-hmm. But Americans, I think, are even worse at it. <laughs> I, think so. I, I <laughs> sort of tend to agree. Spans. Yeah, they're yeah. short attention spans, and they're 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 really quick to not do their homework. They like to be fed what they're supposed to like, and. and right. yeah. And the journey, the, the journey is not so important for them. They like the arrival. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. This is all getting quite philosophical, but right. uh, well, just as well. But uh, I think that that's you know, that's what we do and what we're known for, and uh, uh, you know, it's what gets me out of bed every morning. Okay, now you had spoken about academic composers, and the question, the the name that came to mind right away for me was Walter Piston, and you've just, just uh, released a new yeah, really album of his music. A, a, a Piston. I'm I'm trying to, you know, one of the things I, I want to do with this label as it approaches its hundredth release is to have really represented every major com- American composer as best I can, and mm. there's a few notches on that belt that need to be notched, and Walter Piston was one of them. I that Piston CD which just came out has a piece. So most of Piston's symphonic music was recorded some time or other. 
Um, but it has a piece, an early piece of his, which is a very short but punchy uh, concerto for orchestra, which had never been recorded. Yeah, I wanted and to I, ask you about this one because this one really struck me um, when I saw that it was a premiere recording. I was like, how can, that, how can that be? Because, um, and I, I thought, you know, as an example of very accessible 20th century music that, you know, even people with a passing interest in classical music would be drawn into. This yeah. really struck me. And I was a trumpet player and played in orchestras. And this, this composition has fabulous brass, uh, yeah. you know, parts in it. And uh, it really pulls you in. But yet the, the movements are really short. I mean, they're over just when you get into them. And even for people who don't have a long attention span uh, for movements, but the arc of it is uh, very satisfying. And uh, especially the, the uh, final Adagio uh, movement, it really satisfies. And I thought, oh, this is a fabulous piece. I just couldn't believe that no one who, you know, had performed this in the past thought this needs to be recorded because I thought this is a great piece. And for a live program with, you know, all modern music, I thought this is great. Uh, I, I guess you like it as much as, yeah, I, I as like I'm it describing too. it. Really, it's early piston. Uh, so, and I like it because it's exactly what you said. It's, it gets to the point and uh, you know, it's, I think it's 23 minutes or something, or maybe even 21 minutes. Uh but it does, in those 21 minutes, he does what you should do in a concerto for orchestra. He features every part of the orchestra, gives a lot of solo uh, prominence here and there. And yeah, it doesn't mess around. And it's, it would be a great either, it could be a concert opener, but it's a good concert ender, I think. Yeah, Especially if you want to have a, like a two-piece second half, you know, mm -hmm. two 20-minute pieces or two 25-minute pieces. Um, yeah. This would be a great concert ender. And I was surprised that it had never been recorded. In fact, I was, I couldn't quite, I was so surprised that I did extra research to make sure it really had never right. been recorded before I slapped the world premiere recording on the, on the cover. Right. Of the right. Yeah. I really like the sound on this too. I'm that the Thank you. recording I, I on it, it, it just, it, I played it on my big system and then it was just, yeah. you know, filling the room and I was like, Oh, this is great. And the contrast, it's got, like you say, it's got everything, the string and woodwind figures that come through in the first move, the state, stately movement come in. And then that huge low brass finish, it comes out really thickly. And I was like, oh, this is, yeah, I, I really like this. And it was the idea that it was new to, you know, to everyone uh, as a recording, you know, that made it well, all the more appealing. That's Mechanics Hall. That you're, there's two things okay. making that sound. Mechanics Hall is one of them. Uh, our, our engineer, Joel Gordon, is another one. Um, and the third one is that Walter Piston knew how to write for orchestra. Oh, that's indeed. something that, that, that um, that's another thing that I think is really important about our mission. Whether it's using a piece, an unknown piece by Piston or, uh, you know, a new piece by somebody like Andrew Norman or Mason Bates, there are because orchestras don't play so much contemporary music, uh, composers have often not been able to hone their skills writing for the orchestra and having those chops to make an orchestra. I always say make an orchestra sound. Right. And um, uh, I, we've been involved in a lot of commissioning projects. And, you know, these days, younger composers or mid-career composers often are relegated to writing what I call the snappy new music opener. 
hmm. you know, an innocuous six-minute piece that that the orchestras can say they they commissioned a new music piece, but they don't want it to come as the major piece the second half because everybody will leave an intermission after the Brahms piano concert. <laughs> right. um, but we've been engaged in an effort to try to commission younger composers um, to write substantial orchestra pieces, 35, 45 minute pieces um, that use big orchestra when we, when we can do it. Uh, and uh, some of them have been quite recognized the, uh, uh, two of them that we commissioned recently won Graumeyer Awards, which is like the Pulitzer, but with more money. And uh, the, you know, we've had candidates for uh, runners up for the Pulitzer. And um, I think that to invest in the next generation of composers that can write for the orchestra and, and, and take writing for the orchestra as a serious, uh, as a, as they're being part of an evolution and a, a tradition mm -hmm. of knowing how to to write for the orchestra, and I find that that's a that's a skill that is fading quickly um, amongst mm -hmm. composers. And you know, it's easy to mix a, a CD like by a composer like Piston um, because he knew how to make the orchestra sound. You don't have to do a lot of mixing with it. You just really yeah. just have to let it go and let the orchestra and the composer in the hall do their work. And it sounds. Yeah. My, my life as a listener has been, uh, I've seen um, Piston go from, uh, cause we're, he's really, when I was younger, he was most famous for his um, harmony textbook. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. and uh, I had never heard any of his music. And then the Naxos label started putting some of it out. I have a few of those recordings. And now right. BMOP's new release. And he sounds like he was a fantastic uh, orchestrator. And uh, and very meticulous. Uh, you know, the, this word craft has, has taken on a um, sort of a negative connotation, uh, which I don't think it should. Uh, it seems to imply to some people that... Uh, if your music has great skill and craft, it's also dry and academic and, and mm -hmm. maybe uh, might also have some social implications uh, in, in this day and age. But how could we not admire excellence and skill and craft? <laughs> it doesn't apply to just academic music. It applies to jazz. It applies to world music. It applies to every kind of music. It's either done with skill and craft or it's done not without skill and craft. Right. It, it, the, the, the craft, how the craft is passed down in different cultures, sometimes it's written like in Walter Piston's Harmony book, or sometimes it's oral, uh, as in a lot of uh, quote-unquote non-Western music traditions, but it's still skill, and it's right. still craft. And uh, those composers who have that uh, ability, for orchestra composers, I find that they... Uh, they compose with their ears mm -hmm. and the ones that don't have that ability compose with their eyes. Yeah. I, I think uh -huh. to me, like as someone who likes a variety of music and then when I focus on classical music, the most important thing that draws me in is someone who knows how to use the palette of colors mm -hmm. and all the instrument voices, the, the timbres in a setting that, you know, does the most with it. And that yeah. says as important as what's being said with the material. So when I hear something new for the first time or something that's a little bit outside of my comfort zone, if it's a composer who has 
you know, utilize the sections to their greatest advantage, I will be more tolerant right. of hearing things that I'm uncomfortable with. And I felt with that, you know, piston piece, I was just, I was ready for anything that he would do just of the, you know, beauty of the voicings and right. the integration of the parts. And I thought, wow, this is a really great piece I could play for other people who say, oh, I don't like modern, you know, uh, classical music. Oh, you're going to like this. Tricosky. They don't like anything past Tchaikovsky. Yeah. That's sort of the tipping point for people. Um, I think your point is well taken and that, you know, I always, the orchestra is the biggest box of colored crayons in oh, yeah. the world, that auditory colored crayons that the world ever invented. And so, uh, you know, I love people that know how to use it and use it in subtle ways, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So that's, um, that's always a thrill. Yeah, I, I worry because growing up listening to music and then my my ear was attuned, you know, I can hear from a young age, I the, oh, that's an oboe, that's an English horn. I could hear the differences and that's what brought the colors out to me. And right. so when I play music or talk with young people and they don't hear these, you know, difference in the shades of timbre and instruments, I wonder what it looks like if it's almost like being colorblind or something yeah. uh, it makes, makes me kind of sad i think it's a little bit of a result of the way people compose now too um because the, you know the revolution in software that allows people to 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 use score or sibelius or whatever they're using is not the same as um sitting down with pen and paper and you know writing writing the lines out and actually contemplating the, the sound of the combined instruments. Right. And uh, I think there's a bit of a process in, 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 in a speed, it advances the speed, but I'm not so sure it's ultimately uh, good um, composing that way. Now, getting the parts in that kind of uh, format is great because sure. I've, I've, <laughs> I've worked through some manuscript parts in handwriting that I really didn't, <laughs> didn't have a good time with. But um, but I think that there, the automation of, of that kind of thinking in composing is what I say when people compose with their eyes instead of with their ears. Right. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you about uh, the uh, Adams recording, too, um, because this um, one was really yeah, interesting. Another recent release we have to mention, yeah. by the way. Yeah. This was interesting to me in a different kind of way. Um, because I had heard this this piece before, and, and um, I thought, well, this is incredibly complex. And then uh, when I look, I read uh, what Adams wrote about the sort of genesis of it. It's kind of a mix of uh, Schoenberg and cartoon music, and uh, he even, he even describes it as uh, like shockingly difficult to play. And there's so much going on with. Uh, intricate rhythms and then you've got that constant you know the the click of the uh drum set in there too and um i just wanted to get your perspective as the uh conductor of it this must have been like really really hard <laughs> to keep in control but yet also keep that playful sort of uh yeah. you know cartoonish thing in there while all those you know, parts um, mesh there. And I thought that the whole effect at the end was really uh, still playful. I thought, well, wow, that must have been hard to accomplish with all that stuff going on. Uh, well, it's that CD, which has John Adams's two chamber symphonies and then a piece in the middle called Common Tones for Simple Time. 
Right. That's a unique CD for us because unlike almost all the other things we've recorded, not all, but almost all, those pieces have been recorded. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Chamber Symphony several times. And um, that's a little daunting because uh, the other recordings made, uh, the, the composer was the conductor. So I was up, yeah, I was up against, against the ur text, as it were. Uh, and John's a very good conductor. Um, so, we, you know, I wanted to do an Adam CD and I picked those two pieces because the two chamber symphonies had never appeared on the same CD, CD right. together. And I loved the, his very his, his first orchestra piece called Common Tones in Simple Time because talk about coloring and right, understanding right. The of a, an orchestra. John's and that's a, fat, a nice like palette cleanse between the two works. Between the two, right. Yeah. So, but it was daunting. And the thing about the first chamber symphony and the second chamber symphony, the it's a, what what I call symphonyette. It's basically one on a part, like fifteen players. And when you're one on a part, there's no place to hide. Uh, and in John's music, there's no place to hide. It's crystal clear, and especially in that 15-player format. And John's music in the chamber symphony especially is wild, like you said, and there's polyrhythms, threes on top of twos on top of sevens, but with a driving beat underneath. Mm -hmm. So there's always a groove in that music. And as soon as you get like the slightest bit out of the groove, it feels like a shopping cart with a bad wheel. You know, it, it just, it just, it's going forward, but not, it's not right. And it can be only infinitesimally out of the groove uh, or right. what we call a pocket. And yeah. it just feels like you're driving a truck with a flat tire. Uh, so that was a tough CD to make for those reasons. The, 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 uh, example of John's great recordings and trying to like, you know, I don't, didn't listen to the recordings um, while I was preparing to do the recordings or even during editing, because I didn't want to, I wanted to go from the score to make what I thought was the thing. And it's, the performances are different than John's and he and I talked about it and he, he liked the, the, the different perspective. Um, but there, those pieces are a real challenge. And I have to <laughs> do a shout out to my, my players who, are just monsters. I mean, they list fantastic players and they, they took that the, on that recording. And um, we did that, the, both those pieces, the chamber symphonies in probably half the amount of time that we should have allotted for them, but <laughs> they got the job done. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a great result. I'm so very happy with it. Yeah. And we, we recommend it as well. It's, it's, yeah, it's really a lot, good. it's a lot of fun. Yeah. I thought I'm, when you're ready to be energized. And it's got a roadrunner on the cover. What could be oh, yeah. better? Nice cover art yeah. on there, yeah. I personally believe that um, the Warner Brothers cartoon music, cartoon music is one of America's great gifts to the world of music, <laughs> really. It's oh. really special and unique. No yeah. one- I'll, I'll recommend, a, I don't know if you can find it. Uh, it's probably in, in, used on eBay or something, but there's a great CD called the Carl Stallings project. Carl Stalling wrote all the putty tat and right. Roadrunner cartoon music, but there's this fabulous CD of outtakes from the recording sessions of those. Uh, of oh, that those sounds funny. He said, Oh, it's a blast. And the players, you know, in that day and age, if you wanted to make a living as an instrumentalist, you didn't play in them. I mean, if you really wanted to make money, you didn't play in a major symphony orchestra. You went to Hollywood and right. worked in the studio. So yes. some of those got people men and women who played on those sessions were just especially the woodwind players and the brass players too 
and actually this percussion and string too, they all were monsters and hmm. Carl just wrote the most fast and furious music for them. Um, so yeah, people should look for it, the Carl Stalling project. And you had to conduct it while you were watching the screen too, right? Yeah, really well, it, it's funny. The, the first track on that CD is, uh, it's a, it's a, from a recording session and you can hear, Carl's voice and he says, okay, putty tat trouble, take one. And then you hear, <laughs> then you, then you hear, a, like, I think it's probably a clave's, you hear a click, 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 so four times. And then bang, they, they explode into this music, like, <laughs> and it stops. And, you, and then you hear Carl say, okay, putty tat trouble, take two. <laughs> like, 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 and they, they, they do it like three times. And he says, okay, that was it. <laughs> and then they move on. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. I remember but having a recording. The last movement of the John's Chamber Symphony is a lot like putting tech in trouble. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. There, there's one more um, recording that just got released that we haven't spoken about yet. And that's the uh, Barber one. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about the works on that? I've heard Knoxville summer of 1915 before. Right. Uh, it's um, not recorded terribly often, but I really uh, like this performance as well. Um, thank you. Yeah, I like this performance a lot too. You know, this month we released a Barber and a Piston CD at the same time. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, that's sort of a tip of the hat to the to the old, uh, you know, as old a composer as uh, we would we would probably do. Um we have a couple coming out that are a little bit uh, uh, more senior than Piston even. But, uh, you know, it's just sort of an American Masters Month. But uh, mm. the Barber CD has the very well-known and recorded Knoxville Summer of 1915. Um, I like our performance a lot um, because of the soprano, uh, Kristen Watson. Um, yeah, that's I'm, what struck me too. Yeah. She's a beautiful singer. And what's what I, I mean, I'm, I'm not impartial, so I, uh, you can take it with a grain of salt. But what I love about that performance is I can understand all the words. Yeah. That, yeah. She delivers the text so elegantly and so thoughtfully and so well. The diction is so, because a lot of the recordings I've, I've heard of it, I'm like, the, the text is so beautiful and, and so yeah. um, very moving. Yeah, yeah, very captivating. And if you if you can really, you know, one of the things I always strive for in all our recordings, whether they be opera recordings, the 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 final marker for me is if they're spoken, if they're sung and there's text, I want to hear the text. I want to I want to be here without having to look at the libretto to say what was that word I didn't quite catch that or to follow along. We've all gotten lazy because we listen to opera recordings in other languages, so we follow the librettos. Right. But when we listen in English, in our own uh, whatever language is our own language, I think for uh, uh, editing and mixing, my my goal is always to have the text crystal clear, and. Um, Kristen, who sings that in Knoxville, um, made it easy because her diction and, and delivery are so uh, fabulous. The other pieces on the CD are uh, the original version of his ballet, Medea, which he wrote for Martha Graham. We've, we've made a small little cottage industry of recording. Um, the Martha Graham commissioned tons of composers to write mm -hmm. ba ballets for her. Uh, some famous, some have faded from... Um, from view also, but they're great pieces to do because they're 
She always got good composers. She, she always gave them a very dramatic subject because Martha Graham only liked to dance dramatic subjects. Right. So this one is uh, a Medea, which is a, you know, a, a bloody bloodthirsty tale. And um, he wrote it for what she always commissioned for, which was a small ensemble, usually of 15 or 17 players because whatever th- she wanted it to be mobile and not expensive to produce. So, um, that's where we got, you know, Appalachian Spring and Barbara's Medea and any number, dozens and dozens of commissions from Arthur Graham. Uh, that Barbara later orchestrated that uh, some of the movements from the, the ballet for full orchestra, and they get played in concert sometimes. One's called the Medea's Dance of Vengeance, I think is the title. But this is uh, not the first recording of the complete ballet in its original form, form, but the only one I think that's available now, and certainly the only one in uh, uh, surround, and in, and maybe only the one, the only one in digital too. Um, and then the last piece on the CD is a little chamber opera he wrote called "The Hand of Bridge." Um, Barber and uh, Minotti and Lucas Foss—they all had—they all had a bet. They all bet each other they couldn't write operas under 11 minutes or something like that. <laughs> so they each wrote a little mini opera and this is Barbara's mini, mini opera. It's four characters and their internal uh, secret thoughts during a, a game of uh, a game of bridge in an upper, what we assume is an upper East side apartment or something in New York in the <laughs> late fifties, but they all live a little fantasy life while they're, they're daydreaming in their, you hear their private thoughts while the bridge game is being played out. And it all happens in nine and a half minutes or something. <laughs> right. How was this originally performed? Was it on TV or was it uh, for the stage? It's very short. Where, yeah. No, I think it was just part of an evening where they all uh, ponied up these little um, these little operas and they just ran them together. I, I mean, I performed it as part of a concert and you just throw a card table up in four chairs and a deck of cards and that's all you need. You just... Inevitably, one of the singers' is back is to the audience, which is a problem for staging it. But, <laughs> right. but you can work around that. and uh, uh, You can make it like The Last Supper. You can have everybody facing yeah, you. Yeah, right. Well, I've seen it done in different ways. Uh, but um, they, it's usually combined with the other pieces that were written. One of them was a piece by Lucas Foss called Introductions and Goodbyes. And I think it's also nine minutes. We actually have a recording of that that's going to come out with another Foss opera <laughs> uh, down the line. But that's just for uh, one singer. And all he does is uh, say hello to people entering a party and say goodbye to people leaving a party. <laughs> all mixing a drink. It's uh, it's a fun little piece. So I think they did it tongue-in-cheek. So Hand of Bridge is a sort of tongue-in-cheek piece right. also. Yeah. Okay. Oh, oh, just one more recording I want to talk about is uh, the one that came out before the Adams was an Elliot Carter uh, CD of two ballets, and I was really curious about that because it's not really the um, the the modernist Carter that we uh, right, think right. about. They're 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 very listenable. Can you right. tell us a little it's, about it's those early Carter? They're they're his only ballets. He um, wrote. There were two of his early or pieces. Pocahontas, uh, the first ballet. I. I think is his first major substantial orchestra work. There may have been, there's something called the Holiday Overture. I think that may be before Pocahontas, but that's an interesting story and very a very beam-up story. Um, I always knew about Pocahontas. Uh, 
because it, it, there had been a, a suite or a cut down version um, that was available uh, on CRI, I think. Um, so the, the full length ballet Pocahontas is about, I think it's about 37 minutes, 35 minutes. Um, the suite had been, had cut out about 15 minutes of music and, and just, you know, left some of the sections out and, and that had been recorded and played, but doing a little research, I found out that that missing 15 or 17 minutes of music had not been played since the ballet had been premiered and it hadn't been recorded ever, uh, naturally. And so I set out to try to put it all back together. And it took a little doing, but it wasn't too hard. The, the publisher was G. Shermer, and they had the parts for the, um, for the suite. So they were missing the orchestral parts for the, the missing music. And they had a manuscript of the full original score. So I just took it on myself and sort of figured out how it was originally stitched together. And we identified the parts that need to be copied out and added to the score and parts were generated and we made the recording. So in on since we did the second performance of Elliot Carter's first substantial orchestra piece and the world premiere recording of a full ballet. Yeah. So, and the yeah. stuff that got cut, you know, I have a, I have a, another career as an opera conductor and, and where cutting things is, is, you know, uh, become the norm, you know, that people will go into opera productions and say, uh, I always tell directors, uh, I would entertain cuts, but there has to be a reason for the cut, not a reason. They think of it the other way. There has to be a reason to add in, to actually do the music. Mm -hmm. and I'm like, no, you have to have a reason to do the cut, not a reason to do the music. The composer gave you the reason to do the music by writing it. But I, I the music that was cut from the Carter Ballet in Pocahontas, I, I'm not sure why it was cut. Mm -hmm. it, didn't, it wasn't that much music. Uh, and it was good music. I mean, it was actually it advanced the arc of the piece and it, it, it was, con you know, had some, gave some more contrasts to the music. So that was a very much a, a kind of thing Beamop loves to do is not only find a piece that's forgotten, but maybe even one that's uh, needs a little putting back together. Right. And then, and then get a kind of, and, and world premiere performance in a sense and recording. And we got a lot of, no press about that. And the New York Times wrote an article about it. And, and we added to it another piece, Minotaur, which is a um, full-length ballet that had been recorded. Um, but um, they were a nice pairing. And uh, it was Carter's Complete Ballets on one CD. Yeah, nice, nice program. So what do you have coming up? Is there going to be another release in two months? or uh, There's going to be another release. In, uh, there's going to be a bunch of releases, actually, because uh, one of the things, like as I said earlier, that while we haven't been able to perform in COVID, we had a backlog of a lot of recordings. Mm -hmm. um, and the, of course, COVID wreaked havoc on so many things. There were a few, I don't want to hesitate to say upsides, I, but there was an opportunity to take care of some things that I didn't have time for while we were making concerts. And sure. one of them was editing a backlog of CDs. So we have stuff coming out pretty at a pretty good clip the next year because I've had the chance during this 16, 17 months to really work on editing that was piling up. Right. So um, what's coming next? Let me 
I almost should look at the list to get it right. But um, the very next thing is a, an opera we resurrected by for really forgotten American composer, Arnold Rosner, uh, an opera called The Chronicle of Nine. Um, after that is another John Hardison disc of uh, with Don Upshaw as uh, the soloist on the CD. After that is an opera by Todd Macover uh, called Death and the Powers that we premiered in Monte Carlo five, six years ago, and the recording's finally coming out. Um, that'll, that'll be one for the, that's our first Atmos uh, offer. Uh, yeah, I, I seem to recall Todd, Todd Macover's music from the 80s or you know, a yeah. long time ago, and it was, yeah, I think it would suit, be, it's well suited to that. Uh, yeah, there's a whole, whole lot of technology and, and, right. and audio effects that'll be uh, really, a, it'll be great in surround, but it'll be even better in Atmos, I think. So, yeah, I think he was at MIT at the time doing some is. project. Yeah. Mm. yeah, and then after that is a, a piece by the young American composer Matt O'Coin. Mm-hmm. Um, his piano concerto and uh, two uh, two song uh, two pieces with voice and orchestra. Uh, that's October. Uh, November is um, another forgotten composer, Gail Kubik. Mm, uh, some of your listeners might remember a cartoon called Gerald McBoingboing, which was about a boy. It was it was a Dr. Seuss cartoon, and Gail mm. Kubik was a established Pulitzer Prize winning composer who um, wrote the soundtrack for this famous narrative Dr. Seuss cartoon called Gerald McBoing Boing. And it also includes other pieces of his, the piece that he won the Pulitzer for, I forget what year, 1942, 47, I can't remember exactly, which was a, a, a symphony concertante. For the oddest, uh, it's basically a triple concerto and the, the instruments are piano, Trumpet and viola. That's and, interesting. Uh, with, yeah, it's very strange. It was very hard. It's hard to balance that combination of instruments. Um, but he won the Pulitzer for that in some sometime in the late 40s, I think. Uh, and uh, this will be the world premiere recording of that. And um, a CD of music by Roger Reynolds. I mean, they just, they're going to be coming out. We're going to try to release 12 or 13 CDs in the next year. Wow, that's a, <laughs> that's a, that's a lot. Well, for a small organization, you know, for a small company, a small organization with only four staff members, um, it's quite quite a you know effort. But um, that's what we do. Yeah, mm-hmm. but we're glad to have it all. I can, I can oh, yeah. How about the B-Mopper? Are they going to be re- performing again soon? Do you have a date for Yeah, um, that's been an interesting thing. Uh, here in Boston, uh, a lot of the concert halls <clears throat> that we use, we primarily perform at Jordan Hall at the England Conservatory. And sometimes we also perform at Sanders Theater at Harvard. I remember Sanders and, Theater. And both, of the, both of those halls, uh, because of COVID and because they're uh, housed at universities or schools, They've been much more uh, cautious about uh, opening up, and because they have to, you know, protect the student body. Uh, so, and they have a lot more moving parts as a than a like a com- regular commercial concert hall would be. So, what's happened? Uh, it's been easier to program and plan for the 22-23 season than it has been mm. for the 21-22 season. Right. So we, we know a few things, but we're still waiting on some possibilities about the Jordan Hall being a little bit more accessible. Uh, 
to what we want to do. Uh, we are going to play, um, you know, when COVID came, we were supposed to be, that was the season we were going to celebrate our 25th anniversary and then oh, COVID instead. So we're going to take our 25th anniversary events we had scheduled and sort of spread them out over two seasons um, while COVID sort of, you know, ebbs uh, and, flow, you know, wanes from our daily life, hopefully. Uh, so we'll be playing a concert at Symphony Hall in Boston, at least one, maybe two this year. Um, we're launching a series of uh, uh, concert performances of operas by Black American composers. Um, we'll be playing next year in 22-23. We'll play our Carnegie Hall debut. Mm. So there's stuff planned, uh, just not stuff so much in the real immediate future, but we've tried to utilize that time, take that time and get back into the recording studio because that we can do. Hmm, right. We're all vaccinated and we, we, we can record together. We just, it's the audience that's the complication. All right. Right. All right. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we, uh, I, don't know, I appreciate the chance to chat with you guys and, and, um, uh, yeah, I mean, people can just learn more about uh, the orchestra and its um, its recordings by just going to our label. With, I mean, our website, which is uh, bmop.org. It just couldn't be simpler, bmop.org. And you yeah. uh, can see what's okay. coming up. Do you have any kind of a website or where people can contact you if we have listeners that want to know we something can. about well, the project? They can actually do it through the, the BMOP website. Um, okay. There's a, a, a email link for me there, and they can drop me a note. And okay, we'll, we'll put the link up on the... Uh, yeah, we'll put it with the uh, podcast episode. For sure. podcast episode. And um, might be the general, uh, I think it's the general uh, email, but they can, um, the messages get to me. And, you know, one of the things that happens, this happens on social media or on our website, like-minded, what I call repertoire wonks, uh, I think I used that expression earlier, they, they email me with ideas all the time. And I've learned quite a bit about, Composers I didn't know about, and uh, a lot of the suggestions are great. I just um, there's there's just not enough time and not enough money to do all that should be done. Right, right. <laughs> well, that's he's, he's, that's. I guess that's a truth for everything. That's, that's just an eternal truth. Yeah, yeah for yeah. everything, every every uh, every aspiration. So, but you know, it's a it's a great pleasure to do it, and it, it's 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 a, I feel like the orchestra gets. And I do get to go along for the ride, but we get to make a a unique contribution that we wouldn't get to do if we were, you know, a regular symphony orchestra pursuing a, an agenda that most orchestras pursue. Uh, we're pursuing a very specific uh, mission, and uh, it's it's just an honor to be able to do it. Yeah, it's great to be hearing all the all of this music, really, for the first time for all of us. Well, uh, thank you for joining us right, today, well, and it was a pleasure much. to talk to you. All right, nice well, you guys have a nice. Well, you don't have much evening left. It's probably morning there now. Uh, actually, <laughs> yes, I think the new day just started. The new day started, <laughs> but it's a good start for a day. And, you do um, most of, most of the uh, uh, interviews like this morning in the U.S. and evening. Yeah, or the reverse. We're in the morning and the the uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the other person US, be in the evening. Uh, Europe is a little bit that, that's even but, trickier, really. Yeah, it's yeah, a little right, trickier, right. but uh, that's that's harder, yeah. right? Right. Yeah. Right. Well, we'll, great. Have to, we'll have to uh, interview a Japanese artist one day, so we could just yeah. <laughs> <take> <laughs> in the afternoon. Yeah. How did yeah. you? I mean, what took you guys to Japan? I mean. Oh, we, oh, 
Uh, well, oh, that story. <laughs> well, th- we'll, we'll we'll tell you all about that on your podcast when you on invite your podcast. Yeah. <laughs> it's good. a long it story. Tables will be turned. Sounds good. Wow, well, yeah, I, I love Japan. It's one of my favorite places to to visit. It's so. a good place for music. Um, you know, the Japanese um, are loyal fans of whatever music they're into, lifelong. You know, so yeah. musical group. You know, even pop groups that have been long forgotten in the States or other, elsewhere, they can come to Japan and their fans from 30 years ago will show up with a stack right. of albums to be signed. No, and, I, when uh, I conducted in Japan, a chalk may walked out the stage door and people were there with beam up CDs, like in a right. stack, right. Yeah. Right. all yeah. organized with the Sharpie ready to go. Yep. And uh, they just it made it really easy. And they were very, yeah. it, it blew my mind. Yeah, they're so big the, fans of Japanese are great things, collectors and, and fans, yeah. right. and right. they like they still like the physical media, and um, you know they they have eclectic tastes in various things, and so yeah, as a musician or music lover, uh, you know the the music stores are great, and uh, for both instruments and uh, you know for uh, buying music and there's a, a huge uh, used music scene and other things. So yeah, it's an interesting, uh, interesting uh, environment I, I, for musical. Uh, yeah. I just want to tell you a little story about when I first came to Japan in 1994, I lived up in uh, Takasaki in Gumaken and there was a guy there cause they, they found out I liked classical music and there was a guy there who had collected CD was still a relatively new thing. It was nine years old at about that time. And this one guy had collected, he had every CD of Baroque music released up to that time. It it was unbelievable. It was like he had this whole room dedicated to these CDs, which were kind of like a new, well, they were 10 years old by then, but they were still sort of, uh, it was overwhelming. I was like, man, that that kind of was quite an introduction to Japan to see that. I certainly hope he hasn't kept that up. (laughs) Oh, you know, it's funny. We have, um, uh, we have distribution in Japan and we get sales there. Um, we're actually going into a new distribution arrangement with a different company that'll take over the Japanese distribution. But um, yeah, I would say we get past our normal kind of American Amazon sales or our, you know, in-house sales. Um, the UK and Japan are where we get the most sales. And I think a lot of it is the audio file thing too. Right. Right. I mean, they like the Elliot Carter CD. I mean, they might, be like, I, we might not pick it up if it was a stereo CD, but if it's a surround, it might be enough impetus to buy the CD. And then, you know, I think we're starting to get some brand loyalty too. Um, so that's why, that's why it's been great to catch up on all this backlog. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're in, when you're in Japan, look us up. We'll, I will, we'll get, I will, I will. We'll, I we'll, hope we'll get some yakitori. Nothing to eat the whole time. Our audience is split. Um, the two largest segments are split kind of evenly between the U.S. and then Japan. Uh, and then the rest is uh, very diverse around the globe. So for all of our listeners, uh, now that uh, Gil shared with us you know, this very interesting uh, perspective and uh, repertoire that the uh, BMOP performs, uh, please do check out this uh, American classical music uh, repertoire and history. Uh, we have got, you know, a lot of uh, listeners in Europe, uh, South America, and spread around Asia too. And, uh, you know, as, Ama- India, as they're a big audience. India is big too. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> you know, do check out American classical music. Uh, 
you know, compared to Europe, we're, we're much younger, but I think this, a lot of uh, exciting music here that we're uh, an intensely musical culture, to. aren't we? Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. So thanks again, Gil. Uh, this has been a great right. interview and we appreciate your perspectives. We'll uh, put this up. Uh, I think we're going to release it on Friday. That's when we do our special interview. Yeah, generally uh, Friday. So next yeah. Friday. And we'll include your links uh, to the uh, Beam Up page. And, and we, uh, okay. That's fantastic. We'll look yeah. for it. Yeah, the, the the most recent releases too, at least the last. Yeah, I'll put four, the links up we'll for the up uh, recent yeah. releases on streaming. The Barbara Piston and, Adams and I guess Carter as well. And the Carter one too, yeah. yeah. Fabulous. All right, guys, thanks. Thank, Thank you. you very much. All right. All right, take care. Take care. Bye bye. Take care. Bye now. That was Gil Rose of the uh, Boston Modern Orchestra Project. Uh, their most recent three releases are. Samuel Barber's Knoxville Summer of 1915, Medea and a Hand of Bridge, Walter Piston's Variations on a Theme by Edward Burlingame Hill, Divertimento for Nine Instruments, Concerto for Clarinet and Orchestra, and Concerto for Orchestra, and John Adams' Chamber Symphony, Common Tones in Simple Time, and Son of Chamber Symphony. Yep, you should have checked them all out. They're all intriguing and have absolutely brilliant sound quality that uh, you're going to enjoy on your fine system or headphones and be drawn into the music. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you with another interview very soon. Mm-hmm.